Welcome everyone to episode 125, Mutation Burden. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Dalen, how is it going over there? I'm doing all right, Kiki. The summer's over. The heat is breaking. Kids back in school. I feel like I'm ready for a fresh start. It's going to be a good academic year. Kids back in school and school's letting the kids out because it's so hot. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, I heard about this. The the new, it's like the opposite of the snow day now. The the new norm is the heat day. It's pretty scary. It is. Well, yeah, you got to keep those kids cool so their brains don't overheat. I mean, they're doing all that learning now and we're just trying to keep on keeping on. (laughs) Back to the grind. It's fall. Yeah. All right. So let us get to it. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you not only can subscribe to our newsletter, but you also will find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And you can follow us on social media on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, on Facebook, Stem Cell Podcast, and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. The new episodes will come to your device automatically each time we publish, which is about every two weeks. We have a great show today, however, where in addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we have a great guest for you. We're going to be talking to an internationally renowned leader in the field of genome biology and medicine, Dr. Kelly Fraser from UC San Diego. You ready? Yep, Kiki. Yep, yep, yep. She was one of the first to come in with this idea of, you know, iPS cells being different with all the patients and doing this hardcore genome sequencing. So, it's going to be exciting. Yeah. But before we get into that, we got to do what we do every time. We use this time typically in every episode to remind our listeners about the fantastic email newsletters that stem cell offers keep scientists current in their fields. But did you know that each of these newsletters has an affiliated Twitter account? Yup, it does. Not an email person. That's okay. You don't have to worry about that if you're one of these newfangled people unlike myself, the Luddite, it's not a problem. You can follow your favorite stem cell science newsletter on Twitter. Get to tweeting. Keep current with the latest research news and events and to connect with other researchers in your field. We talked to Science Sam. She's really taken the lead on it. And while I've resisted, I must say that I'm way behind and I got a lot of catching up to do. You're probably already there. Go to www.stemcellnewsletters.com and click on the Twitter icon in the top right corner to see a list of all 20 newsletter accounts, each connecting to a specific field of cell biology with its own Twitter account for each one. I mean, it's nuts. Kiki, get in there, right? Get in there. And for me, I'm going to get in there with some science news. We've got some good stories this week. Did you know... There's a new found cave system. Well, it's not really a cave system, but there are tunnels in your skull that have just been discovered by researchers. Publishing in the August 27th issue of Nature Neuroscience, researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School have discovered that there are little tiny channels that cut through the bones of the skull, connecting the interior of the bone to 
the dura mater, the covering of the brain to the system of the brain. And this allows potentially neutrophils, immune cells that come from the bone marrow to locally respond to insults to the brain. And so they did some studies where they tried to figure out how these neutrophils travel into the brain when the brain is damaged or when there's infection. They labeled these cells and looked at the cells coming from the skull and also from a very distant location, the thigh bone. And unsurprisingly, there were more cells from the skull's bone matter responding to the needs of the brain than there were coming from the thigh bone. There were some thigh bone neutrophils showing up on the scene, but really, if you have a localized attack or damage, you're going to want a really rapid response. And it doesn't make sense for cells to be traveling for that response from very distant locations. And so looking more closely at this journey of the skull marrow neutrophils, they found little microscopic channels connecting the bone marrow to the outer covering of the brain. Pretty cool. That's crazy. Skull yeah. marrow. I didn't know there was such a thing as skull <laughs> marrow. Yeah, you might think your skull is, you know, not thick enough as a bone to really have bone marrow, but it does. You've got bone marrow in there and it is important to your brain. You know what I'm thinking? We don't stop eating the, with the monkey brains. You got to go for the marrow, too. You ever seen the Indiana Jones, too? You know, monkey brains. They miss the marrow. That's so good. Suck the marrow out of life. (laughs) (laughs) Yuck. (laughs) Other brain-related news. There was a study published recently in Cell Reports by a group of researchers at the Cellular Neurosciences Lab at Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin, along with other colleagues looking at the microglia in the brain. And microglia are the immune cells. They're one of the types of glia that surround the neurons and support the neurons themselves. They have more of an immune system response where they respond to damage within the brain. In this study, they looked at differences between the microglia in male and female mouse brains. Lo and behold, there were differences. The microglia in male brains are very different from the microglia in female brains. Dumber. No, actually, it's kind of interesting. And the the question here is how these results that I'm going to explain right now, how they may influence human sex-related brain disorders like autism, also like multiple sclerosis. So what they found is that male mice have more microglia. The cell bodies of the microglia are larger than those of the female microglia. They also identified a thousand genes, more than a thousand genes, 300 to 400 proteins that are regulated differently in the male and female mouse brains. There are more of them being activated in the male microglia. like, And the ones that are getting activated are more often involved in defense responses. They're defensive molecules. They also found that male microglia, the cellular membrane potential, is higher in male microglia than in female microglia. So the male microglia are actually closer to the firing threshold than female microglia. When they applied ATP, 
to the different microglia, the male microglia had a more robust response with higher ion currents and higher production of different proteins. So Dr. Suzanne Wolf, who is a senior author on the study, she says in the female cells, proteins and genes responsible for protecting cells, such as DNA repair genes, are more active. In male cells, on the other hand, we see increased activity of genes involved in initiating programmed cell death. So male microglia, you're, you're laughing here, I see you. <laughs> male microglia might be actually less protected against environmental insults like head injuries and more quick to respond with cell suicide programs. That explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, it could explain a lot to do with how female and male brains respond to traumatic head injury, you know, like that we're seeing football players and soccer players and boxers. It might explain a lot of the differences that we have seen. And there's a different study by a group of Italian researchers who, when they took female microglia and put them into the brains of male mice that had been kind of had an applied ischemic stroke, they responded better and had uh, more reparative processes than if they had left the female microglia out. So male brains are kind of more set up to quickly respond, but not really respond very well. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that sounds about right. Although I feel that now I feel like after this story, people are going to be cannibalizing a lot of women's brains for all the goodies in there. <laughs> right, let's do that. No, but the question is, this you know, this is a mouse study, so how does this actually apply to humans? And so the next step is to try and look for these genetic and protein and actually, you know, cell membrane response, the cell responses in human brains and see if they are similar. Because really, yeah, we want to know. We have these questions. Why do we always use male mice or male brains for these studies for drug responsiveness or ther different therapies when ah, there are potentially very many differences in how our brains will react? Moving forward, some people like to, speaking of drugs, a common drug that is part of a huge crisis going on, opium, opioids. We get these drugs from plants right? The morphine drug, other, other drugs that are used that come from the opium poppy. This is the best source of these powerful painkillers. And researchers would love to know how plants have come to be able to create these molecules so efficiently, because it would be much easier to produce these drugs in bacteria or a yeast to have a synthetic production supply of these drugs that's super efficient as opposed to having to go out and get the flowers from a field. So there is a study out in the August 30 issue of Science. Researchers have done a genetic analysis of the poppy, Papaver somniferum genome. And in doing so, they found a cluster of 15 genes that are localized close together within the plant that control two pathways to help the plant synthesize these chemical compounds like morphine and others. What they discovered looking at this is the ability of the plant to do this came from a couple of genetic events that occurred way, way back. There was one that they could specify happening about 7.8 million years ago, in which for some reason, the poppy plant decided to duplicate its entire genome. And so it ended up with a whole bunch of extra copies of its genes. 
there had been a similar duplication event previously. And so the poppy just ended up with a bunch of extra genes lying around. And because there were these extra genes, some of them had crossover events. Some of them had insertion events. These genes replicated and then kind of got mixed up. And they're all situated next to each other in the genome. And their original jobs kind of shifted. And because maybe a gene started making more copies of a certain protein or the gene sequence was repeated a number of times to create a protein with a longer sequence, that the shape of the protein changed, the shape of the chemical interactions changed. And it's these gene duplication events over history that allowed the genes to fuse and create the precursors for the molecules that for these chemical pathways for the morphine-like compounds. The old adage, idle hands are devil's workshop, right? Although I don't understand why we're, why we're trying to do better with making opioids. She go going in the other direction. Let's make something that doesn't decimate our entire culture, perhaps less addictive, maybe. Morphine-like compounds are the prevalent pain management medications. Mm. And research is, has for the last decade or two started to show that they are not the most, potentially the best compounds for controlling pain. So hopefully now their process is looking into better and different compounds. But it's good to know how these plants have these chemical pathways come about because then it makes it easier for chemists to understand how to synthesize them in the lab. Mm. The poppies... Maybe it'll teach us more about how we can do better in the laboratory. For sure. And of course, like you say, studying it, maybe you can make compounds that are less addictive yeah. or maybe you can neutralize the addictive properties. Who knows? So yes, definitely worthy of study. Fascinating may- story. And maybe we can just make more of it and give it to yeah. everybody. <laughs> and well, and in, and in place of that, in the meanwhile, let's just do it. Because <laughs> it's it's fun. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Final story for the roundup: CRISPR, which we love so much, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system. A new study has come out of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, where researchers have used this system in beagle puppies to correct the gene responsible for muscular dystrophy. The animals have a a similar disorder to Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and so are a good model for the human disease. And this particular gene editing process was shown to be successful previously in mice. And so they moved it up to this first large animal study. And in this, there were only four dogs used in the study. And the researchers injected these one-month-old beagles with the CRISPR-Cas9 system to mutate a particular hotspot in the dystrophin gene that could potentially change the production of dystrophin, the protein responsible for the disorder. And what they found is that in all the dogs, the levels of the protein increased in every muscle group that they studied. The effect was variable, but it all increased Previous studies suggest that bringing dystrophin levels up to just 15% of what they are in healthy people could be enough to relieve some of the dystrophy-related symptoms. In patients, they found all sorts of changes in the hearts of the dogs that received the higher dose. They had 92% 
increased of what they were in healthy pups that did not have the mutation. But the levels, like we're talking about the variation, the levels in the dog's tongue were only 5% of normal. So that's really incredible. I mean, two things. One, first, that's just amazing. I feel like they're one step away from getting this into humans. And it looks like it has a pronounced effect, too. Do dogs get muscular dystrophy? Is that like a thing? Or they, they just made no. these dogs to test it? Yeah, the dogs are made to test like, it. I see. I yeah. see. At least those dogs are getting a little. Getting a little help. And so this is a preliminary study, but the the success of this study is the kind of success that's going to be needed in moving this kind of treatment forward to human studies. Muscular dystrophy has no cure at this point in time. It is a severe progressive disease from which people usually die of heart failure. And it's estimated there are 300,000 people worldwide suffering from the condition, mostly men and boys. And it would be amazing to find a treatment for it. Wow. Eric Olson. Eric Olson. machine. Yeah. Doing good work. All right. Is that it? I'm, I'm going to press on to the stem cells. You through? I am done. I'm ready for the stem cell science. All right. I'm coming with it. Starting off with a kind of nuanced story, but I think it's cool. This is about like a, maybe a less appreciated aspect of stem cells, which is their surface charge and the sugars that determine that. So this is researchers from the University of California, Irvine. They've identified these intrinsic cell properties that are important for determining fate of neural stem cells. Okay. So this is a story about neural, of course, it always is. But the idea is how can we control differentiation of neural progenitors and embryonic pluripotent stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, and how do we get those neural progenitors to form the derivatives that we use, like neurons, astrocytes, or oligodendrocytes? Well, published in Stem Cell Reports, this is a study led by uh, Lisa Flanagan, who's associate professor at UC Irvine School of Medicine. It showed that neural stem cells differing in fate potential express different patterns of sugars on the cell surface. And these sugars, they contributed to the neural stem cell membrane electrical properties. Okay, you know, neural cells are all about the electrical impulses. And ultimately, this also contributed to cell fate determination. Okay, so back up a little bit, a decade ago, roughly, Flanagan and her colleagues, they discovered a new way to identify and distinguish between sort neural stem cells by their fate proclivity or potential, and it was based on the cell's electrical properties. So now they're building on that and showing that the difference in the electrical properties is actually determined by the cell surface sugars. Okay, so how'd they get there? They looked at several pathways that add these sugars. This is like glycosylation. The pathways that add this modification to cells and found that maybe it's not glycosylation. I want to back up there. I know that's a protein modification. Kiki, I don't know if you can confirm or deny, but adding sugars to the surface. I'm going to back up and refine what I said. My apologies, Lisa Flanagan. Don't hate me. (laughs) Anyway, they found that if you looked at the pathways that added these sugars, that one of these pathways differed in between the cells that make neurons versus those that make astrocytes. And when they switch these up, they cause them to change fate and make more astrocytes and fewer neurons. So this suggested that the cell surface sugars or the pathways that added them was controlling fate. Now what they're doing is they're testing 
whether they can modify this pathway and change how the cells behave in transplants or in during development. And they're focused on machinery inside the cell that adds these sugars in the first place to the surface of the uh, cells. And they're also finding that particular proteins on the cell surface are changed by the pathway. So it's part and parcel of this whole complex machinery that determines the electrical conductance of the cell by adding these cell surface sugars. And that also determines fate and the cohort of surface proteins and other intracellular proteins that kind of dictate the function of the cell. So it's all wrapped up in this big idea that begins with the sugars. My apologies for not knowing what kind of sugars those are, but it's a new thing. It's a novel thing that Lisa Flanagan is pumping into the system, a neural. In the study here, it's uh, glycolysis-associated genes, glycolytic activity. So you're on it, glycosylation. You're close. close. Yeah. Thanks for the save. (laughs) (laughs) But it is interesting that these kind of metabolism-associated genes, you know, stuff related to the the use of the sugar, you know, glycolytic genes. How are these sugars being used? How are the sugars being split? Is lactate being put in there? Like what's involved? It's interesting that the cell fate is potentially tied up with metabolism. Yes. And the charge. And I just love science is funny that way. Everything does everything in every situation. Yeah. So moving on to another, I think, new idea type. So staying kind of in the same theme, except in the blood, which I love. So let's just start with the takeaway. One of the major takeaways, adult humans have many more, about 10 times more blood creating stem cells in their bone marrow than previously thought, ranging between 50,000 and 200,000 stem cells. So that's just one of the, the major takeaways of this study that uses population dynamics approaches that you typically see in like ecology to reconstruct somatic cell dynamics. Okay, so let me elaborate. This is researchers from the Wellcom Sanger Institute and Wellcom, MRC Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. This is a story published in Nature. It was about, it presents this remarkably novel, in my view, approach for defining the clonal architecture of an organ during aging and or disease. Okay, so what did they do? The research is in the study. This was led by dual corresponding authors, David Kent and Peter Campbell, were the leaders of this study. They conducted whole genome sequencing on 140 blood stem cell colonies from a healthy 59-year-old donor, okay, a male donor. So what they did is they took 140 clones that came from these hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, 140 clones which then ultimately gave rise to a lot of cells so that they could do the genome, whole genome sequencing. But what was amazing is that by analyzing the naturally occurring mutations in this cohort of cells, they were able to use the accumulation of mutations to model and track the stem cells kind of back in time and see how the stem cell dynamics within that one individual change over that whole person's lifetime. So from taking these 140 cells, they reconstructed in this patient the whole arc of the stem cell emergence, showing that the number of stem cells in the blood increased rapidly through childhood, reached a plateau in in his adolescence, and then reached a constant level throughout adulthood. And included in this was finding this remarkable result that there's 10 times more of these blood-creating stem cells in the marrow 
than we thought. And the reason we thought there were 10 times less is because we've been looking in animal models. This is the first time we were able to actually get into a human system and get like an idea of the architecture throughout their lifetime. This new approach opens avenues into studying stem cells in other human organs. This is just probably the first of a raft of studies that's going to look at clonal hierarchy in organ systems and how they change not only through an individual's lifespan, but also in normal conditions as well as pathological conditions and disease as well as as we age. So I think it's not a nature paper for new reason. It's one of these kind of new thought type, or I don't know what to call it, but it's like kind of in silico. It uses this modeling, a lot of bioinformatics powerhouse with the whole genome sequencing across all these clones. So it's the convergence of many cutting edge tools to get an idea about the way this guy's hematopoietic stem cell system grew up over the course of his life. Super cool. This is amazing. I'm really fascinated by this new view on looking at cells within the body from an ecological perspective and using methodologies that have been developed by other disciplines in science, but to look at what's going on inside of us and to extrapolate back. And they're really, you know, they're taking these population dynamics ideas from ecology and then also adding the phylogenetic aspects of mm -hmm. genomes of genetic studies that evolutionary biologists have been developing. And so I think this is the, taking this interdisciplinary approach, looking outward to other disciplines at what they're doing to see how can you apply it to what you're studying. And it's allowing a new understanding of ourselves. This study is amazing. Yes, no doubt it's a nature paper. No doubt. I think we've no got doubt. to talk to Kelly maybe if we can yeah. today, Dr. Fraser, but it's similar to what she's doing. She's harnessing a similar repertoire of tools toward this end with the mass data. I just It's hard for me to even conceive of, but what's really amazing, I think, Kiki, is that as the computer power and processing and AI, all that mess moves forward, I feel like it's only going to be able to look deeper and be able to reconstruct these things from less information or yeah. to a higher level of granularity or completion. So, wow, the first of many, I'm sure, let me press on to another big study, I think, which is another, it's more of an engineering approach. I want to get this guy, Kip Parker, on this podcast because I think he has another a really novel way of thinking about it. So let me get to it. This is about the blood-brain barrier, right? So because the brain, it needs extra protection from the toxins, other harmful substances in our environment, the blood vessels that supply the brain with oxygen, nutrients, they're highly selective about what molecules can cross the blood into the brain and vice versa. So this is the blood-brain barrier. Beyond forming a physical barrier, this uh, BBB, let's call it, blood-brain barrier, is thought to directly interact with the brain and help regulate function. But figuring out how this works and how that interaction takes place, it's a challenge because in vitro models, it's just cells in a dish. They're too simple. In vivo models, they're just too complex. Sorry, you can't see in there. It's a black box, the brain, underneath all that, what is that, skull marrow? Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, not so much anymore. Now researchers at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering have created a Goldilocks or just right model of the BBB interface, the blood-brain barrier interface with the brain. This is a paper that was in Nature Biotechnology led by Kit Parker, as I said. It's about a chip. Kit, he loves to put together these engineering things. He had this one, which was cardiomyocytes on a strip, and it would like contract and like fold on itself in the beat of a heart. It was the coolest thing to look at. 
He's outdone himself this time in terms of complexity in his group. I should credit them as well. This is a blood-brain barrier slash brain ship system, okay, also known as this neurovascular unit. It actually consists of three chips. There's one influx chip, a brain chip, and then an efflux chip. The influx and efflux chip are made of the blood-brain barrier endothelium. Mm -hmm. And these three compartments are physically distinct from each other, but they're all connected by these microfluidic channels, the loud exchange of chemicals and other substances, much like how the supplying blood vessels, you know, they go from the blood system, from blood vessels outside of the brain into the neural compartment, and then they drain through other blood vessels and go outside of the brain. So it's a similar idea, except deconstructed into this chip-like interface. These chips are comprised of four types of cells, hippocampal neural stem cells and their derivatives, brain microvascular endothelial cells, astrocytes, and brain parasites. These were all primary cells from human. And they put them together, and you got to look at the figure to see this. I can't describe it, but it's essentially three boxes with all these cells mixed together in different proportions. And the real cool thing, I think, a part of the coolest thing about this is how they show that these neurovascular units worked, as they like to do over there in Boston. They pump them with meth. All right. What would you think? <laughs> of course. Why wouldn't you? That wasn't what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, all credit. To, I don't oh. think they do a lot of meth in Boston, but they do a lot of meth. Too much meth everywhere. Oh, but I was gosh. referring more to how these Harvard and Beast and Special Institute people, they love to really get creative. You know, they like to make it a cool story. And meth is cool as far as a story. <laughs> it's not cool to do it, no. but it's a cool way to test your system. That's for sure, because meth. It's known to disrupt the junctions between the cells of the BBB in vivo, causing it to leak, compromising the junctions of the BBB's vascular endothelial cells and allowing passage of the molecules that would normally be kept out. Of course, when they pump the meth in there, they show that there's this leakiness is recapitulated. So they show that their system worked. And then they actually built on it further. And I don't want to elaborate too much on this. It's a big story with a lot of elements, but they built on a shower. I mean, they <laughs> built on it further by showing that there's a unique contribution and crosstalk between that vascular endothelium and the BBB and the actual brain cells within the neurovascular unit. So to quote uh, the lead author here, Kit Parker, the big breakthrough here is that we have teased out communication networks between cells in a way that never could have been done with traditional brain research techniques. In vivo studies simply do not offer the granularity to determine how complex these metabolic networks function in heterogeneous cell populations within living tissues. We are seeing here an unanticipated level of complexity that raises the bar in terms of what it will mean to successfully map the brain's connectome. And I don't want to make a joke about the meth thing because you know what yeah. they can do now is they can they can study how meth works in the brain. And given the epidemic of that and other drugs, it's a really important model on which a lot of things are going to be tested, I can bet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is different from the, the organoid system, but it's, you know, you still have multiple cellular types, but it gives you that resolution mm. in the activity of the different cell types in these different portions of this area of the brain, which is so important to, exactly. uh, to, to our away. immune system, to our, yes. how the brain functions, and to also talk about like, how do we get more drugs into the brain? Mm -hmm. This is like a great platform for being able to study potential drugs that you want to get into the brain. Are they big enough? Are they causing leakiness like methamphetamine? How do, they get, how do you get a certain drug for a therapy in there? 
because that's a big challenge to medicine. You want to target your glio, you got to get your drugs in there, right? Yeah, that's cool. Very cool, very cool. And not to take away from the organoids, that's an amazing system too, but this offers a level of control, I think. You know, it's much more deconstructed, reconstructed, very, yep. very cool stuff. On to another really cool study that, you know, it's you get kind of bored almost with how many studies come out of Juan Carlos Ispizua Belmonte's lab. We've had people from his show, we've talked about his studies over and over and over. I think this one is on par with some of his most amazing and perhaps I could, could argue the most clinically translatable, all right? This is a big story that probably everyone's already heard of, got a lot of coverage, putting reprogramming factors directly into wounds to heal skin ulcers, okay? So in large patches of ulcerous skin, the surviving cells there, they kind of go towards inflammation and wound closure to try and you know recover as opposed to healing, all right? But this is a new approach by Espizua Belmonte's lab. Now the cells can be reprogrammed and not just reprogrammed into a patch and then put on there, but reprogrammed in situ, in vivo, in living tissue. So this was developed by, uh, again, Juan Carlos Espizua Belmonte lab at Salk and his team. And what they've done is that they've essentially taken the wound and reprogrammed it to a stem cell-like state. So when ulcer is especially large, it can be difficult to, for patients to graft enough skin. In these cases, they can isolate skin cells from a patient, grow them in a lab and transplant them back into the patient. We talked with uh, Michele DeLuca about that a while back, about how he transplanted in, or reconstituted the entire epidermis for a boy with this crippling skin disease after gene targeting. That was amazing. Remember that, Kiki? Absolutely. But this is kind of another step forward, I think, and using similar principles, but in situ. So a critical step to wound recovery in the skin is migration or transplantation, DeLuca's case, of basal keratinocytes. These are kind of the stem cell-like equivalents in the skin. But severe wounds, they've lost multiple layers or may just totally lack the basal keratinocytes. So what the scientists at Salcare did is they decided to just convert those cells. If they didn't have basal keratinocytes there, they took whatever cells were there and changed them from an inflammatory cell type into these basal keratinocytes. They began with a panel. They isolated by looking at two cell types, inflammatory or keratinocyte, and said, what are the genes that are coincident with these fates? to get a panel of genes that they could use to try and reprogram between those two fates, they started with 55 reprogramming factors. And I think this is a testament to big science, big lab, the fact that they could take such a massive amount and then ultimately through trial and error, whittle them down to four factors that could mediate the conversion to basal keratinocytes. And when they topically treated the skin ulcers and mice with these four factors, ulcers grew healthy skin within 18 days. Over time, that epithelia expanded and connected to the surrounding skin, even in really large ulcers. And at three to six months later, the cells behaved exactly like healthy skin cells. And by a number of molecular, genetic, cellular tests, they threw the whole kitchen sink at it, showed that this is a pretty much skin. So this is a huge deal because reprogramming wound resident cells could be useful for healing skin damage, countering the effects of aging, kind of cosmetic. But like really what we're talking about is like skin grafts. I mean, my mother had a terrible burn. She was in the hospital for over a month having wow. skin, painful skin grafts Ugh. from her 
thighs to her arms. I'm sorry to blow up your spot, mom, but I know you're not so private about it. It was excruciating. But this is a way that I think you could treat in situ very acute phase, you know, right after the wound, not have to have all that awful debridement and healing process. Painful even to remember. So this is a, a study that's close to my heart. I wish we could get Juan Carlos on the show. He sent one of his ambassadors. Please, Juan Carlos, come for my uh, mother's sake. We need you, buddy. Yeah, this is huge. This is amazing. The whole idea of not necessarily having to rely on growing the skin or these, you know, from stem cells, like we've talked about before, or even just doing those painful skin grafts to just grow the skin. Here are the factors. We put right. the factors in. Sprinkle it on. The cells do what, they're, what they know to do when they're given the right instructions and you have skin. Uh, yeah, there it is. I like it. Nice well, work. We'll see how that plays out. Next step, they're moving into uh, larger animal models and Good. they're no stranger to that. If you remember, we talked to June Wu. He was yeah. doing chimeras with pigs. With so pigs. they've got the confluence of so many animal models, so many fields that I won't be surprised if they've got this in clinical trials within the next five years. I'm going out there. This may be a real case. Five to <laughs> May <ten years>. actually <laughs> be. <laughs> exactly. All right. I think that does it for the roundup. So before we get to our interview, I would love to tell everyone out there or ask you a question. Are you working with induced pluripotent stem cells? Are you? Stem Cell Technologies invites you to visit their website for webinars and other free educational resources related to the most important considerations for human pluripotent stem cell quality. Learn why you should regularly monitor the genomic integrity of your cells, how to maintain quality standards, and more at www.stemcell.com genomic-integrity. That's stemcell.com slash genomic dash integrity. All right, so now our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Kelly Frazier. Dr. Frazier is a professor and the founding chief of the Division of Genome Information Sciences in the Department of Pediatrics, director of UC San Diego's Institute for Genomic Medicine, and a leader at the university's Clinical and Translational Research Institute. Dr. Frazier has spent the past 25 years studying various aspects of functional and structural human genomics, and today she joins the show to talk to us about her work with pluripotent stem cells and a recent paper looking at the mutational burden of human-induced pluripotent stem cells. Dr. Frazier, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So just to get started, I've told people where you are but can you give a little bit of detail, uh, summarize what you do in your lab and how you got there? I'm pleased to be here, by the way. Thank you for the invitation. I refer to myself as a genomic scientist. And over the past 30 plus years, my research interests have largely focused on first de determining the sequence of the human genome. I mean, there was a large group of people involved in this endeavor, and I was fortunate to be one of them where we determined the, the string of the 3 billion nucleotides, that A, G, Cs, and Ts that compose our human genome sequence. And then I moved on, and after the genome was sequence was determined, and determined for what we refer to as the reference genome sequence, which was essentially for one individual, I spent a significant amount of effort then trying to figure out, well, what's the differences in genomes between individuals? 
And this led to a series of experiments, and the field was able to identify the vast majority of genetic variants that differ between people. And we know that these variants exist, and we know that these variants really are the underlying cause of phenotypic differences between individuals, but we really don't have a handle on how they're resulting in these phenotypic differences between people. So at this point in time, my lab is really focused on looking at functional genetic variants, the subset of variants that likely result in molecular and phenotypic differences, both at the cellular level and the organismal level, and trying to understand mechanistically how those variants are working. And so that's the main focus of my lab. So I think encompassing that, forgive me if I get anything wrong here, but just to color it in for our listeners here, I just want to emphasize that you've done a lot of the heavy lifting here when it comes to applying that whole genome analysis with the whole IPS and ESL and pluripotent stem cell generally field. Much of that, I think, is, is stemming or following from this IPS core idea that you set up and as a consortium between many groups, but the bottom line there was collecting IPS and getting really rigorously well-defined IPS cell lines from a number of individuals. I think here we have 220 separate lines that you got. Some of them were twins. There were 41 families in there. They represented over 100 unique individual genomes. So I think that gives an idea of the tool set that you're using, or some of it. I'm sure there's much more to it, but Is the idea generally there that you're tying the genetic information that you're getting from that to the actual phenotype of these individuals? Are you looking at their whole constellation of physiological traits, et cetera, and lining that up with the IPS core, or is it something else? Well, what we're doing is we have the, the, as you stated, the 222 IPSC lines from different individuals. And we have conducted whole genome sequencing on these individuals from their blood. And so we have the entire suite of DNA variants that are in these individuals and in the lines. And what we have done to date is we have differentiated these lines into cardiomyocytes. And we're currently differentiating into pancreatic precursors and have just started differentiating into retinal pigment epithelia cells. So we're not doing the whole constellation, but we're doing several different cell types. And the idea here is to look at how DNA variants in these different cell types, the iPSCs, the cardiomyocytes, pancreatic precursors, retinal pigment epithelia, how the genetic variants are influencing the epigenome and gene expression. And with the entire collection, so to give an example, RNA expression, We've generated RNA-seq data from all 222 iPSCs, as well as the corresponding derived cardiomyocytes. And then we go and look to see, okay, across these 222 cardiomyocytes from different individuals, we see differences in gene expression. How is that differences in gene expression associated with those genetic variants? And then we can look and see at the epigenome, things such as A3K27 acetylation, which is a histone modification, and that's known to mark enhancers. How do changes, how do the genetic variants affect the enhancer state, and how is that associated with expression? 
And so we can layer on, we're layering on a whole variety of different molecular assays within the same cell type, RNA expression, histone modifications, DNA methylation, and eventually we hope to do proteomics. And by having this complete picture in this well-defined in vivo model, we're hoping to be able to really look to see, all right, which genetic variants in cardiomyocytes, for instance, are functional and how do they mechanistically function and what is the molecular readout. And by understanding how genetic variants work within a cell type, the goal is we can then look to see how genetic variants that have been found associated with different types of heart disease, how do those variants actually intersect with the variants that we know their function of in the cardiomyocytes, such as various types of EKG traits. That's a, another project that we have on, ongoing. And so in this recent study that you've published in, what was it, Cell Reports, you are looking at beyond just these different individuals, but looking at these induced pluripotent stem cells and looking at these skin cells taken from people induced to be pluripotent stem cells, but looking at the mutational burden. Can you talk a bit about how you came into looking at this aspect of the genetic, I guess, phenotype? Again, the overarching goal of our lab is to use the collection of iPSCs as a tool to understand the genetics and derived cell types. But we really had to understand, it's been known for a long time that induced pluripotent stem cells as all somatic cells have different somatic mutations. These are not inherited variants, but these are DNA mutations that arise um, in an individual. We really wanted to find how do these, somatic, these DNA somatic mutations, similar to what you find in cancer, how do they impact the epigenome and the transcriptome in the iPSCs, and how is that going to influence our ability to use the iPSCs in our genetic studies? Yeah, I thought that was a, the most impressive, or I don't know, maybe worrisome would be a different way of putting it. Stat there was that, that as you would expect, because these are skin biopsies, close to 50% of the lines you looked at had UV-mediated mutations in the mutational burden. And also, as an aside to that, there was the idea that there's these subclonal mutations that emerge. So the idea that culture in vitro, if I'm not incorrect there, can introduce mutations. Both of those things kind of are, is this the death now of cell-based therapy in that any kind of manipulation or the history of a cell in the case of iPS cells is going to adulterate it? for therapy, or does this just mean that we have to be especially vigilant on the front end in terms of what kind of cells we're going to be reintroducing to people? I think it's the latter. I think that the stem cells themselves, as, as we showed in the paper, really have an, an overall mutational rates that are very similar to adult stem cells. So this it's not above and beyond their, their mutation rates are not above and beyond what one expects in normal human somatic tissues. Now, the one out point on that is that the UV damage 
And that's because the, the somatic stem cells have been largely, especially initially derived from skin fibroblasts because that's easy material to get from individuals. However, other material that's also easy to get from individuals is blood. And so reprogramming the iPSCs from blood will get rid of the problem of UV damage. However, I think that that doesn't mean, okay, we're home free because blood also, you know, we're also going to have to look at those because the cells come from adult stem cells. And one analysis we did, but it didn't actually make it into the paper for a variety of reasons, is we looked at the heterogeneity of variants, the, the subclonal rates of variants in the iPSCs versus in human blood. And actually, there were many more subclonal mutations in the human blood that we found. And this is probably because the human blood, the white blood cells, is derived from many, many different you know, stem cells in the bone marrow. Is that a bonus for people who've had their kids' <laughs> cord blood frozen? Like if you have cord blood, would that be an ideal candidate cell type because it's neonate? I think it would be, yes. Good news I, for the cord blood freezers, I guess. I think that that is probably going to be the best source to be making the iPSCs from. In terms of the mutations that are taking place, one uh, result was that these mutations, the subclonal mutations especially, are enriched near promoter sites within the genome. And so can you talk about what effects or what implications that potentially has for how gene expression and potential these stem cells being implanted and leading to cancers? like? One thing that our study did, which most studies that have looked at mutations in iPSCs haven't done, didn't do, is we really took advantage of some of the bioinformatic tools that have been developed in the cancer field. And we used tools that allowed us to identify mutations that are present in only a subset of the cells within any particular iPSC line. Now, iPSCs are derived in a clonal map fashion, which means that you know, a single cell gives rise to an iPSC line. So the vast majority, or what we found was 90% of the somatic mutations in that iPSC line are clonal, meaning that they were actually derived from the parental cell that gave rise to the iPSC. But we found that 10% were subclonal. So these arose probably in order for us to be able to detect them in the first few cell divisions after the pluripotency state was reprogramming occurred. And so the subclonal mutations have not been under much selection. The clonal mutations come from a parental cell that's a somatic cell. And so if they were bad actors, they gave rise to bad phenotypes, there'd be selection against that. You know, evolution occurs in all of our cells in our body. But the subclonal mutations have not been under selection very long. And so they can be much more functional. And as you indicated, we found that they are much more likely to be involved in active chromatin states, enhancers and promoters, and much more likely to result in aberrant expression of genes for which they're um, in the neighborhood uh, in the same genomic region. Just listening to your... Um thinking about every study that's ever been done. <laughs> and I'm worried that maybe there's a 
it's bias in some of these clonal cell lines that people are using to model whatever, be it, you know, IPS, disease-specific lines, et cetera, that may be specific to subclones, as you said, that there's subclones that have this enhancer aberration. And of course, I know all these studies in order to meet the due diligence have multiple parallel lines, but is this something that I think you think is a, maybe one of the takeaways from your study is that we need to kind of reframe our approach for all these studies to account for this mutational burden? So I think there's two things. One, for the type of study that I'm doing, genetic analyses in collections, this is not going to affect my finding very much because we can still look completely at common variants because those are present in many, many different lines we can characterize them. However, when we're looking at rare variants, so variants that are present in a single person or their immediate family or you know hundreds of individuals, and the impact of rare variants, we have to make sure that when we're doing a rare variant analysis, that we're not actually looking at DNA mutations. But to say, you know, are there, do these mutations affect the previous studies that have looked at or modeled particular cell types? And I would say by and large, no. I think people have not been aware of them, but I don't think they've dramatically changed the results or the interpretation of the results from those studies. I think people moving forward have to pay attention to the DNA variations, mutations, but also, you know, there are other differences in the epigenome of the iPSCs, which probably slight variations, which people aren't aware of yet, which we're starting to get some insights into how these slight variations between different iPSC lines actually result in different differentiation potentials into different derived cell types. And these are minor slight differences. And so the field by and large, yes, has to start characterizing the iPSC lines that they're using for basic research questions. But more importantly, it's, you know, for therapeutic downstream applications. If you're going to use an iPSC line to derive cardiomyocytes, you do not want a mutation in like NKX 2.5. But if you're going to use that same line to derive neurons, you might not mind that particular mutation. I see. So we're just going to have to become smarter in how we're thinking about iPSC lines there are mutations, there are slight epigenetic differences that have some lines uh, having a higher propensity to derive cardiomyocytes versus other lines that may be able to derive other cell types better. And you know, eventually we may be able to actually figure out how to use that to our advantage. Yeah, it seems like it would be a real disadvantage. You know, you're using a line, a clonal line several, several generations down that potentially has these subclonal mutations that didn't come from the originator, but you don't realize that because you're so many generations down the line. That seems like it could be a major disadvantage, but also understanding where those mutations came from and, and whether those mutations are causing the cells to push in one direction or another. You know, how during that initial division, why did that mutation pop up in this particular subset of the clones? Yes, it's probably random why it popped up. 
there's been no selection on it, so it could stay in an active, an active chromatin state and affect gene expression. One study we did is we looked at four iPSC lines that we had differentiated into cardiomyocytes and had collected RNA-seq data from these lines from 25 plus different time points per line. And what we noted is that the clonal mutations by and large did not change in frequency. So if it was at 30% at passage 12, it was 30% at passage 20, it was 30% during the differentiation process. But a really important point here is that this is all in vitro. It's in a tissue culture dish. And yes, if you put that into someone, it would be in a different environment. And it could, if it gave that particular cell a selective advantage, that subclonal cell type could overtake the the line or the, the tissue type. In terms of these, the techniques that you're using, you've been in this field for so long, coming from the you know, original human genome project where the technology changed during those, you know, the decade or more, the 13 years that the project took to complete. And now we've got the new gene sequencing, the poor nanopore gene sequencing technologies that are available to make it much more rapid. What are your thoughts on which technologies are the best to be using? to get the most accurate sequencing for the cell lines as you're trying to analyze what's going on with the mutations. Exactly which technology is really dependent upon the question you want to address. But broadly, yes, I mean, I've been doing this for, as I said before, 30 30 plus years. And the revolution that technology has made and is continuing to make in our ability to address these very important questions is phenomenal. I wonder what type of questions we're going to be able to address in, you know, 10 years from now. I mean, this paper I put forth where we looked at 18 different lines and we found these various classes of DNA mutations and that some classes of mutations were, were, had more effects than others on molecular phenotypes in the iPSCs. This took us a lot of effort. And I imagine with either current technologies or new technologies that are coming, 10 years from now, people are just, this is going to be a kit. It's going to be kitted somehow. Some company yep. is just going to say, okay, let's look at your iPSCs before you do these experiments. And we can tell you how their DNA mutational profile may be affecting your outcome or how before you use them for therapeutic purposes and what's the intention of the therapy, which lines you might want to use. It's phenomenal. So, so speaking of that, while we're on the subject of the companies and the technology, I want to get a little to the social impact. So nowadays, you know, with the 23andMe, it's proliferating at a rapid clip. And there's more and more of these genomes pouring in. And you can see the implications with these cold cases and our family members popping out of the woodwork, embarrassing stories about some kid you put up for adoption and you didn't want the rest of the family to know or you had a chill out of wedlock or that's not my dad. So there's like the kind of garden variety stuff there. But two things. One as it relates to this specific paper, is there perhaps some false information? When you send, I guess some of the kids use saliva or cheek swab, is there potential there for the genome information you're given back to be representative of your cheek 
and not necessarily of your whole self in a way that's pertinent to your biology is like kind of the serious question here. But the question behind that is that all the stuff that you're going to be able to know from this information, as you alluded to with the technology moving forward, particularly because the kind of studies you're doing, would you be comfortable doing 23andMe? Have you done it? I've been trying, shying away. People love to give it to me because I'm a scientist. Say, oh, do 23andMe. It's a gift you'll appreciate. And I just say I did it and I throw it away. Because I'm very afraid. I don't do that, actually. All you people who've given it to me, I love the results. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, is that I'm afraid. And like for my kids in particular, would you be comfortable with having your DNA out on the street, so to speak? I'll answer that in two questions. You actually pose two questions. So the DNA kits that you get with the cheek swab, those, they're not, by and large, they're not doing whole genome sequence. So they're using these DNA arrays. So they're looking to see, do you have these known DNA variants? So although possible, it's highly unlikely that your cheek swab or your cheek swell cells have a mutation in them that directly represents a DNA variant that you actually don't carry, a common DNA variant in the population. At this point in time, the answer to the question is, no, that's not, not highly likely. But in the future, as they move from doing DNA arrays and looking at hundreds of thousands of variants to doing whole genome sequencing and capturing all your genetic information, yes, that will be an issue that needs to be overcome. The second question as, am I comfortable? Would I be comfortable releasing my whole genome sequence? And I actually have released my whole genome sequence. So I am comfortable with having my DNA sequenced and having it out there in the public. I think that what we have to be concerned about, and, and you know, this is an individual, individuals will feel differently. People feel differently about all types of things in their life that are private the millennials actually feel very different than their parents feel. So it's a cultural thing that's changing. And I actually am a person that values my privacy. So I'm, I'm not just somebody who's all the way out there. But I think we have to realize that human genomes provide a lot of information. And by having more and more genomes available to scientists, we are going to be better able to decode the human genome. And this will provide all types of insights. Now, there will be on an occasional use somebody who uses that information in a bad manner. They either, you know, somehow find your genome and they figure that you are susceptible to something like long QT and they don't hire you to be a pilot. But by and large, I mean, that's actually illegal in the United States at this point in time. It's not illegal everywhere in the world, but you can't do that legally. But that doesn't mean people don't do things that aren't illegal. But by and large, I think the benefits of having it out there is outweighs any potential benefits, you know, any harm that could happen to one person. And the more people that actually release their genomes, the less likely that any particular person or group of people that release their genomes are going to be targeted. I'm excited about the projects that are starting to really look at different ethnicities 
at underrepresented groups within you know the genomic data that we currently have where they're really trying to reach out to different communities so that we can build up the representation and our understanding of so that we can know how potentially different drug reactions are going to take place and how the genome fits with the phenotype and the reaction and it's very exciting i don't know if we can all be iceland though you know if we <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and I, and I think that what we do want to make sure is in respecting underrepresented minority populations, you know, if they don't want to participate in this genomic revolution by having their, you know, their genome sequenced, I understand that based on some of the past things that have happened. However, we want to make sure that these individuals are not left out of this revolution because we are going to be substantially changing how we interpret human genomes at large and individual human genomes eventually and what that may mean for personalized medicine in the long run is substantial. I think there's a lot of hype around personalized medicine. I think this is a reality. It's a long-term reality. You know, it's not an immediate thing, but we want to make sure that we don't leave any particular group of people out of this. All right, Dr. Frazier, uh, we're reaching the end here. In the end of the show, we like to ask all our guests one of three final questions. As for our final question, one of three questions. And you, I think, Kiki and I agree, as a giant in the field who, as I said earlier, did a lot of the heavy lifting and the transition from this genomic sequencing era, getting the human genome product, and then transitioning to applying that in the next revolution, you know, the cell therapy, et cetera that maybe you could give some advice to young scientists and how do you navigate, how do you stay current? How do you stay at the bleeding edge of your field and continue to have outsized success as you have? Dr. Fraser, please kick the knowledge. As I tell most young people that I give advice to, and that is the most important thing, and it's not just in science, it's anything, is to be doing things that are driving you. You know, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you want to think about is what you're working on or, or, you know, what is that project? And if you're really enjoying what you're doing, it doesn't actually matter where you are or what position you're in because you're on a path that will take you places that you're doing things you want to be doing. Whereas if you're dreading what you're doing, you want to get off that path immediately because the only thing that the only place that's going to take you is to places where you're going to really be dreading what you're doing. I think that, you know, to stay current in the science field is it's actually not easy. There are all types of avenues and it's splitting in multiple directions. And, you know, there's really technologists who actually develop the next cutting edge of technologies and they're able to stay broad and apply their technology to many different scientific questions. And then there's individuals that are really, really obsessed on a particular question in the scientific field. And what they're able to do is use all of these new technologies as they come down the pike and to further address their question and address it more and more and more. And I think that whichever group you're in, it's important to stay open. Just like 30 years ago, if you didn't 
incorporate molecular biology into your science, you couldn't make it. Now, if you don't incorporate these new sequencing methods into your questions that you're trying to address, your science is going to get old fast. And so it's really important to find yourself in an environment where you have technologists and scientists trying to address basic questions and figure out how to work together. And, you know, you will be able to stay in the field a long time and continue to move the field forward. I love that answer. It's great. Yes. Be excited about what you're doing. Be driven by it, but then also stay open and collaborate. Yes. Find the others. I like sometimes the best advice is get off that dreadful path. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think sometimes you just hold on so tight. You're like, I've been doing it. I've been doing it for this many years. I've devoted this much to it. Get off the path. Get on a good one. All right. Get on, get on one that you're like getting up and running to work for. Right. Yeah. 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 You want to run to work. You want to be excited every day. I mean, there are days when the science is hard and the results are not coming and you have to have that underlying drive to keep asking the questions and trying. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been wonderful getting a chance to speak with you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what comes out of your lab next because I know it's going to be amazing, continually wonderful and enlightening. Everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. Email us info at Stem Cell Podcast. And don't forget, you can take our survey at StemCellPodcast.com. And in two weeks, tune in to our next episode. Dalen, Dr. Frazier, this concludes episode 125 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show.